0: This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about just about everything. And this one is one of the great music stories that we've ever told, and also one of the great American stories ever told. He did it without any formal music training and by himself. In 1918, while serving in the U.S. Army, he wrote God Bless America. But he couldn't sell the song, and so he did what songwriters do. When such things happen, he stuck it in a drawer. He dusted the song off in 1938 as Hitler was rising to power in a far-off land and tried to sell it again. This time, there was a buyer. Kate Smith recorded it, and the rest was history. The song became America's unofficial national anthem, right up there with America the Beautiful. Writing one anthem would be enough for most songwriters, but in 1941 he wrote another. White Christmas would go on to sell 100 million copies for Bing Crosby and become one of America's and the world's most beloved Christmas songs, right up there with Silent Night.
1: I'm dreaming of a white- Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear sleigh bells in the snow
0: If you turned Irving Berlin's story into a movie, Critics would say it was too improbable, too ridiculous. It's that American. He was born Israel Berlin on May 11th, 1888, one of eight children born in Russia. His father was a cantor in a synagogue where Irving got his musical talents, but being Jewish in Russia in those times was hard. Anti-Semitism was rampant and it was ugly so ugly that the Berlin family was forced to move after their village was destroyed in a violent anti-semitic pogrom. His family fled religious persecution and came into America settling in New York in 1893. Like millions before and after them they didn't come here to change America. They came here to have America change them and theirs was a family in need of change. According to his biographer Lawrence Burgreen Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one of his father, quote, lying on a blanket by the side of a road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was in ashes. But there would be more tragedy to come. Indeed, Berlin's early life had more sad stories than the Old Testament, none worse than the loss of his father when he was a mere eight years old. Irving had no choice but to take to the streets of New York to help support his family. And to say those streets were tough would be an understatement. A poverty the likes of which poor people in America today would not even recognize gripped the Lower East Side of New York, the neighborhood where young Irving lived. There was no HUD, no food stamps, no Pell Grants, no government help at all. By the time he was 20, Berlin had stumbled upon his life's work. He took a job as a waiter in Chinatown where he discovered that his tips skyrocketed when he hummed various songs of the day. Singing cover tunes a cappella at dinner tables soon turned into a stint at songwriting. He collaborated with friends at first and soon got his break as a staff writer with a music publishing house in New York. His meteoric rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and then on Broadway started in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band, which would become a hit by various artists, including Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. The song topped the charts when Bing Crosby recorded.
1: Come on in here, come on in here. Oh
2: you dog. Alexander's ragtime band.
0: But ragtime music was not where Berlin's heart was. He wanted to create his own version of American music, one that appealed to the diversity and richness of his adopted nation. He described the audience he was trying to reach with his music, quote, My ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, not the highbrow nor the lowbrow, but that vast intermediate crew which is the real soul of the country. The highbrow is likely to be superficial, overtrained, and supersensitive. The lowbrow is warped and subnormal. My public is the real people. Irving Berlin made good on his mission, creating the richest catalog of popular music by any songwriter in American history. It's been said that writing a song is a bit like giving birth. Laborious and miraculous, Irving Berlin gave birth to over 1,500. He credited his productivity to an inborn work ethic. Saul Bernstein, Berlin's publishing manager, observed that, quote, It was a ritual for Irving to write a complete song, words, and music every day. He told anyone who would listen that he did not believe in inspiration. His most successful compositions were the result of work. Few men or women write so many songs, let alone so many standards. Fewer still write songs that become a part of our national identity. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Irving Berlin here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return now to Irving Berlin's remarkable story. His catalog includes such standard as Cheek to Cheek, Always, Putting on the Ritz, Heat Wave, Let's Face the Music and Dance, and How Deep is the Ocean.
3: Whenever we think of great poetry, our minds inevitably turn to the masters like Keats, Browning, or Shelley, and never to music. We seem to forget that some of our lyric writers are really fine poets. One such famous poet is Irving Berlin. Judy Garland now brings us one of Mr. Berlin's loveliest poems set to one of his most glorious melodies, How Deep is the Ocean,
4: which Judy sings to mothers everywhere.
5: How much do I love you I'll tell you no lie Deep is the ocean. How high is the sky? How many times a day do I think of you? How many roses are sprinkled?
0: What special gifts did Berlin have? What special qualities did his songs possess? Quote, his work isn't witty, but it's very down-to-earth, the late great cabaret singer Bobby Short told The Washington Post reporter Tom Shells. and it is amazingly natural. Another songwriter said this, composer Mark Sandridge. His songs didn't have any seams. They didn't feel like anybody wrote them. It was as if Berlin just walked down the street heard them, and they'd been there all along, and all he had to do was just reach up and pluck them out of the air. Berlin did all of his composing and playing without any formal musical training. He could not read or write music, and taught himself to play piano. He played almost entirely in the key of F sharp, because it was easier for his untrained fingers to play the elevated and well-spaced black keys. He said this about that, quote, The black keys are right there under your fingers. The key of C, ah, that's for people who study music. Berlin loved to boast about his ignorance of music and believed it actually gave him a competitive advantage. Because he didn't know the rules of songwriting, he explained, he was free to violate them. It's a story about so many things, Irving Berlin's life story, hard work, creativity, and America itself. Tell me another country or his story is even possible. The man who gave us white Christmas was Jewish. The man who gave us God bless America was born in Russia. You can't make that up. The only identity politics Irving Berlin embraced was being an American. No hyphens, no cynicism, no apologies. Just a whole lot of gratitude. In fact, God bless America was written as a prayer seeking God's blessing and peace for America. It's why it resonated more in 1939 than when he'd written it in 1918. War was on the horizon again, even if Americans didn't fully know it. Over the years, the beautiful opening verse has been scrapped by most singers, though one singer always includes it in his performances. The great Irish tenor, Ronan Tynan. And here it is.
1: God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the
0: In 1940 Berlin established the God Bless America Fund and set aside the songs royalties to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. It's generated tens of millions of dollars to both groups. And in a rare television appearance in 1967 Irving Berlin came out to center stage onto the Ed Sullivan show and he sang the song he wrote first by himself and then soon after with Boy Scouts to the right and Girl Scouts to the left. Irving Berlin's music was a gift to the country that adopted him and transcended all religions, races, and ethnicities. It also transcended musical styles and time too. Blue Skies reached the top of the charts when it was written in 1927 It made its way back to the charts in 1978 when country music singer Willie Nelson covered it. That's some legs for a song.
6: Blue skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies
0: do I see In the 1946 musical Annie Get Your Gun, Annie Oakley lamented falling in love with Frank Butler. In the Berlin gem, I got lost in his arms. The lyrics read like a poem aimed straight at the heart, as meaningful today as when they were written 70 years ago. I got
5: lost in his arms And I had to stay It was dark in his arms And I lost my way from the dark came a voice, and it seemed to say, There you go, there you go. How I fell as I fell, I just can't recall.
7: But his arms
5: held me fast And it broke the fall And I said to my heart As it foolishly Kept jumping all around kept jumping all around I got lost But lost
0: America got lost in Irving Berlin's music, and from the dark, we can still hear his voice, soothing us, healing us. Berlin kept to himself, and he made no public appearances during the last decade of his life, except for an event to mark his 100th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall. He died one year later from natural causes at the age 101. In a letter to Alexander Wolcott half a century ago, Jerome Kern, another great composer of popular music who gave the country showboat, offered what may be the best and last word on the importance of Irving Berlin's work. Quote, Irving Berlin has no place in American music, Kern wrote. He is American music. Irving Berlin's story here on Our American Story.
5: How I felt as I felt I can't recall But our arms held me
1: fast And it broke the fall
5: to my heart
1: As it foolishly kept jumping all around
4: I got lost
1: But look what I found
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about music here on this show. Every kind, jazz, rock, blues, classical. And we hope you love it, too. And we also love this day in history stories, always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This one, well, it combines both. Because on this day in history, a man whose music you all know, and I mean you really know it, it's baked into the fabric of the DNA of this country. On this day in history in 1854, this man was born.
3: He was an American and a music man, and like music, existed in time. And that time was a long time ago, a time where no one thought to complain that baseball, the national game, was slow. It was a time when America dared to believe in itself. He gave it all his gifts. He was John Philip Sousa. It all began in the capital city of Washington, D.C., where John Philip Sousa was born the first son and the third child of ten children on November 6, 1854. Sousa's father served in the Marine Band for nearly 25 years. If Thomas Jefferson established the Marine Band, it was John Philip Sousa who made it a musical organization of the first rank. Sousa's personal musical genius showed itself early. Sousa's teacher was incredibly demanding and apparently no child psychologist. When the boy showed him his first composition, the teacher humiliated Sousa by hurling it away and announcing it as bread and cheese music. Sousa was eight years old. After suffering further indignities over the next two years, the boy finally one day almost used his fists on the teacher and declared that he was giving up music. Sousa's father, a wise man, said, all right, and got the boy a job in an all-night bakery while he continued regular school all day. After two nights, young Sousa was totally exhausted. The father then negotiated terms between his son and the music teacher and Sousa's musical gifts evolved in peace. When Sousa was 13, he secretly agreed to accept the offer of a circus band leader to leave home and travel with the Big Top Band. But Sousa's father, who had gotten wind of the plan, arranged something even more exciting to the youngster's imagination. The morning Sousa was to join the circus, his father brought him instead to the Marine Barracks and enlisted the boy in the Corps and the Marine Band. But by age 20, Sousa had given up the security of the Marine Corps and set out to make his own way in the world. In September 1880, the opportunity came that would lead Sousa to his distant place in the American pantheon. He was invited to re-enlist and take over as the leader of the Marine Band. The band made its debut at the White House on New Year's Day, 1881. His great marches, that would establish his renown forever, were captivating the nation. Among them, the wonderful Washington Post March. He composed the great march inspired by and named for the Marine Corps model Semper Fidelis, a Latin phrase that means always faithful. Then an enterprising promoter named David Blakely convinced Sousa to leave the Marines and go on tour with his own Sousa band. Blakely assumed financial risk and guaranteed a salary of four times over what he had been making. The band succeeded beyond Blakely's wildest expectations and lasted for 39 years. He had an uncanny knack for pleasing and surprising audiences everywhere. His range was astonishing. He was presenting music from Richard Wagner ten years before it was performed at the Metropolitan Opera, and because he knew the people wanted it, added jazz to the repertoire as well. He didn't care much for jazz, calling it music that made you want to go home and bite your grandmother. Sousa insisted that his sopranos had to be gifted, but they also had to be pretty. His instrumental soloists were superb, but they also had to be crowd-pleasers. He drove himself to the point of physical exhaustion and in later years when everyone believed he had every right to slow down he said when you hear of Sousa retiring you will hear of Sousa dead. Between the band's success and the royalties on his compositions Sousa soon became a millionaire. In 1910 and 11 Sousa's band made a tour of the world but a few years later the world itself was not so harmonious. When the United States entered World War One Sousa immediately wanted to serve, he was by then 62 years old. Still, it was arranged for him to join the navy as a lieutenant. To feel closer to these young men, Sousa shaved his iconic beard and joked, This caused Germany to sue for peace since it made the Kaiser realize that no nation willing to meet such sacrifices could be beaten. By the twenties, Sousa had become a national asset, an institution. His birthday is bordering on becoming national holidays. Here's Souza on his 75th birthday.
2: I don't know whether I'm worthy of such an honor, but I'm going to accept it just the same. It isn't everyone that can get a cake on his 75th birthday.
3: Sousa worked tirelessly for the rights of professional musicians. He, along with Victor Herbert, had helped to gain copyright recognition for music used in piano rolls and phonograph recordings, and later on, radio. He coined the phrase canned music and was the founding member of ASCAP, the first organization to protect rights and collect royalties for composers, authors, and publishers from all uses of their music. On March 6, 1932, Sousa died unexpectedly in his room in the Abraham Lincoln Hotel from a heart attack. He was eight months short of his 78th birthday. He had been right about how the world would hear of his retirement. John Phillips was dead and is buried at Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The Marine Band commemorates Sousa's birthday every year with a ceremony at his grave. He wrote taps, and with it, an anthem for America, He wrote it, he said, on shipboard one night standing by the railing, looking out over the ocean as he was returning from Europe to America, with divine inspiration, he said. It came to him, totally note for note, not one of which had to be changed when finally he set it down on paper. Fittingly, the last piece he conducted the night before he died, and probably the best words I can say, is the stars and stripes forever. John Philip Sousa this day in history.
0: And what a story. 62 years old and he wants to join the Navy. Wow. You talk about loving your country. This is why I hate it when people mock people who love their country like that. You can choose not to love your country, but don't make fun of people who do. And my goodness. Talk about stepping up. Also founder of ASCAP, the writer of this music that now is just Classical American music. And all of it today brought to you by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to go to learn everything about American history, about life, about philosophy, about the arts. And of course, always sports. You'll play it if your child goes there, if you go there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, if you went to college and never felt like you learned enough, if you didn't go to college and want to learn some more, Go to hillsdale.edu, that's Hilldale, hillsdale.edu, and check out their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a must, In Economics 101, I just loved it. And my favorite, the Constitution 101, I learned more taking that class than I did in three years of law school at the University of Virginia, about my own country. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features, The Villages Stories. Our youngest producer, Faith, has been going to The Villages, Florida for quite some time. It's the largest retirement community in the country with over 150,000 residents. This time she brings us a story from a woman named Violet, touching on an important topic single motherhood. Take it away, Faith.
8: The Villages has all kinds of different people, but everyone from the outside can often seem the same. But the more I talk to the folks there, the more I realize the variety of different backgrounds that exist, including the different types of struggles that people have gone through. This time around, I spoke with Violet, the leader of a hula dance troupe. She has loved dancing her whole life, but didn't get into it just for fun at first.
7: When I was a baby, I was very, very pigeon-toed. And I, I would you know, literally fall if I'd run, I'd triple my own feet and fall. So the doctors wanted my mother to put me in those, these uh, braces that spread your feet apart like this, and it's metal. And uh, she didn't want to do that. And so she put me in dance. So I started dancing at two and a half. That's how I started, So that's why I started so young. But I loved it. I mean I was, you know, tap and ballet and then all throughout my childhood I did um, you know, tap and ballet pretty much. Um high school I was in the modern dance club and I competed. I competed in line dancing and I did competition country western couples. And actually that's how my husband now that I have, how we met. He was one of the judges in one of the dances competition contest that I was in he saw me he couldn't keep his eyes off me he said so and then that's um I think that's kind of a life-changing because I finally I was mostly single most of my my life with my kids so I struggled had a lot of struggles were you married before I was married a few times yeah but uh, I, I guess you could say you know just choose wrong or you know think I can't explain it
8: She mentioned choosing wrong before she met her now husband. So, what was life like for Violet? Turns out she raised four children on her own, which of course involved a lot of sacrifice.
7: I'll tell you how important one time when I was single and uh, had a real tight budget. Um, It's kind of a sad thing uh, because my youngest daughter was maybe six, six or seven. It was a Christmas and I had no extra money to buy Christmas. Not even from from Santa Claus, to put anything in their stockings, nothing. And so that Christmas I had to tell my youngest daughter because the others already knew that there was no Santa Claus. And I just, I think I just crushed her. That was a hard, that was hard for me to tell. And she, you know, that broke her heart. But I, you know, that's how poor at one point we were. But you just, you just push through it. You just gotta push through it and do the best you can and and do a lot of praying that, you know, for guidance.
8: And sometimes she had to even give up sleep just to make ends meet.
7: When it got real tight, I had to get a second job. And I got uh, a job with uh, the Wall Street Journal throwing the paper and, I, and that was a good route because Wall Street Journal doesn't come out on Saturdays and Sundays, just during the week. So I would get up like at one in the morning, Get ready, and my kids were old enough to get themselves ready and catch the school bus. Thank you know, thank God for that. And um, I'd get myself ready. I'd have to go pick up my papers by two thirty, and then I'd go to my route, which was kind of far. It's outside of Houston, and I'd throw my paper route, and then I would go to work, starting at seven o'clock in the morning, and then come home. I had a little bit of time. I had to I had to be in bed by no later than, for me, for, to get the sleep I needed, no later than seven o'clock at mm-hmm. night. I mean, any, anywhere between five. And so that was, that was, a, that was difficult. So that's what I did to get, to get me some more extra money. So you did the work of a paper boy. But, you know, through the car you so saw, I was very good at slinging those papers. <laughs> yeah, I'd sling it. a I had a small car too. But how long did you do that for? I did that for about eight months. The stuff that I've gone through is like, oh, my God, did I do that? I'm sure your kids appreciate you a lot. They do. They do, yeah. I'm sure when they were younger, they couldn't understand, well, how come I can't have a car? You know, Susie, Joe, parents bought her a brand-new car to go to school. Well, I know I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't have a brand-new car. Are there, so I'm sure when they're younger, they didn't understand. Have there been... Epicenic moments for them. My youngest daughter, uh, she was in the navy. She's uh, forty. She's her forty this year. Uh, she has. She has come to understand uh, what I had gone through, and she understands that you know I was very strict, very strict mother, and you had to be with four kids by yourself. I was a very strict mother.
8: Do you think you were too strict at times? <laughs> no, I
7: don't. I really don't. I mean, it, they, they've turned out beautifully, my kids. I think I know she understood. They understand. I mean, um, I mean, they knew I loved them. I mean, I didn't hate them. You no, know, it was strict for their own good, you know. Just like you know, you need to go to work, and you need to you need to pay for your clothes. And and um, it's still my oldest daughter to this day. The first thing she does when she goes shopping for clothes, she goes to the bargain rack. So it made her real, you know, thrifty with her money. So they they all, you know, whether they believed or not, they learned a lot from me. I still struggled. I mean, I still struggled, and I worked hard. Um, The kids, you know, when they turned 16, they had to get a part-time job and help, you know, not so much help me, but to be able to buy their clothes, makeup, whatever they needed, shoes. At that point, that and I think that taught them how to take care of themselves. So, all my experience in life I think helped it build, build me, build me, made me strong. When do you feel like you saw the light at the end of the tunnel? When I got my manager job, uh, you know, the money I, I made pretty not great money, but I made decent money. I was able to buy a house on my own, um, and so. I, you know, it started, things started falling into place then, and then shortly after that's when I met my husband Bill.
8: What was it that helped her through this difficult time?
7: My church. I found um, uh, when I was when the kids were younger. I I grew up Catholic, of course. My mother was in Italy, of course. I'd be Catholic, right? Um, but I found another church, um, the LDS Church, Latter Day Saint. It's Mormons. That was a big turning point. For me, it gave—like you said—gave me strength. It gave me focus. Uh, it, may, it gave me. It helped me to know who I was, where I was going, and why I was here. I mean, all those questions people go—you well, know—what's the purpose of life? What's this and that and the other? And, and what so, are those things for you? It's in the belief of the Mormon Church. It tells you, in, in this church, it tells you that uh, families are forever, not just, um, not just here on earth but you will be reunited with your family, your husband, your wife, wife or whatever, your children, and your grandparents. So you will be reunited there. So and if you believe those things, you know, it's just, then it's not so scary, scary you know, like what's gonna to happen to me or what, you know, so you know, that stuff. So it gives you, that part gives you strength to, to go on.
8: Many people look to religion to help them through hard times. It gives them some sort of stability, a community, and the support that they need in order to keep going. So for a young, single mom, or say yourself, what would you want to go back and tell yourself? How would you encourage someone who's in that position?
7: Because that's hard. It is very hard. I would say, you know, just continue on. Just push through it. Push through it, because it's not going to be forever. You're gonna get past that point of struggling and it's going to sound funny, but God will reward you for the struggles you've gone through. And, and so just push through it. Just keep on, keep on, keep, keep your head straight there.
8: Violet worked extremely hard. And thankfully, her hard work began to pay off. I have an enormous amount of respect for her. Sacrificing sleep, money, and comfort in order to provide and protect her kids. She learned and grew as a person in ways that she otherwise wouldn't have. And her kids have grown to understand the sacrifices she made, even though at times before, it was hard for them to understand. And they were all so happy that she found her husband, someone to take care of her, protect her, the way that she did for them. So while Violet has had some difficulties, things seem to be going quite a bit better. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from The Villages, Florida.
0: And thanks as always for that report, Faith. And thank you, Violet. Push through it, she said. Push through it. And God will reward you for the struggle you've gone through. And for all the single moms out there, and my bride's mom was a single mom, four kids... And I was just thinking about her because she worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, no vacation. My wife never remembered her mother taking a single vacation. Sometimes the lights wouldn't come on and they got through it. And all the girls graduated from college. So push through and we celebrate single moms all over this country. It's hard enough being a mom with a husband. It's really tough without one. Violet's story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and today we have something very special for you. Our grand executive producer, Most Up High, brings us an hour of radio so compelling, so riveting, so challenging to the status quo, the seas may burn and nations may fall due to the sheer complexity and profundity of this topic. Here's Jesse. Listen,
9: you- if
3: I offer you a suggestion, oh, I'll take any advice I can get, Dad. There is a famous old story about a man who had to get up and speak in front of some very important people, and he was petrified. I'm with him. Yeah, but a friend gave me some advice. Says, look, when you get up in front of those VIPs, you picture them sitting there in their underwear.
10: In their underwear? <laughs> oh, Mike, is that true?
3: Sure it is. Worked like a charm, too, because it made him realize that his audience was only human. I mean, y- you can't be very frightening in your underwear.
2: <laughs> oh, I don't know. You should see me in mine.
9: <laughs> underwear. We all wear them. Most of us do, anyway. Uh, boxers, briefs, bras, drawers, britches, knickers, long johns, lingerie, brasiers, bloomers, bras, corsets, and panties. Yes, I said it. Panties. What exactly
2: was the undergarment just referred to?
9: panties, your honor. Do you expect this subject to come up again? Yes, sir. Of course, the story goes back at least as far as Adam and Eve. You know the story, hanging out naked in the garden when a talking snake convinced them to eat forbidden fruit that made the otherwise happy couple feel painfully self-aware of their exposed reproductive organs. Enter the loincloth made of fig leaves. The first documented pair of underwear, I think. This is by no means a scientific study of underwear, and I'm prone to embellishments, so just pay attention and enjoy the ride. Okay. Eventually, people graduated from the fig leaf to a cloth loincloth made of wool or linen. Now, silk loincloths were for the wealthy, but people who wore them were constantly mocked by the working-class wool and linen loincloth crowds. Try saying that ten times fast. By the Middle Ages, the loincloth had evolved into a baggy-fitting trouser-like garment that I won't try to pronounce. Fast forward a few hundred years with the invention of the cotton gin during the second half of the 18th century, and cotton fabrics were everywhere. By the early 20th century, the mass-produced undergarment industry was booming, and underwear advertising first made an appearance in the 1910s. From the
4: battlefront to the
9: fashion front,
4: and there's no smoke screen here. It's a West End show. Sheer nylon underwear, new style elasticated girdles and brassiers. Everything to delight the eyes of women. Not that the men were exactly bored. Here's a nightdress with a difference. Or what about this? Its title is gorgeous, and we can't think of a better. Overskirts to be worn with panties and girdles were a feature of the show.
9: In the 1920s, manufacturers shifted emphasis from durability to comfort.
4: Rich, heavy satin is the material in these oriental
9: style pajamas. Completing a short glimpse of a pageant we could have watched for hours. But modern man's underwear was largely an invention of the 1930s. On January 19th of 1935, Cooper's Inc. sold the world's first briefs in Chicago. The company dubbed the design The jockey. ...since it offered a degree of support that had previously only been available from the jockstrap. <laughs> Jockey briefs proved so popular that over 30,000 pairs were sold within three months of their introduction. And thus, modern underwear as we know them today was born. Of course, there's a little more to the history of underwear than that. But I'm not here to bore you with those details... What about the underwear of the future? Do you come from a under? And under? The market has certainly come a long way from the World's Fair in 1930.
5: I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Calvin, why, why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein?
9: In fact... Sales of underwear can be seen as an economic indicator.
2: It may be silly, but former Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan says underwear sales are a great economic indicator. Underwear sales are usually stable because men need them. But during really tough times, men may wait longer to buy those Tabasco trousers. When Anna Garcia's husband lost his job, new briefs went bye-bye.
9: He
8: would rather buy a pair of jeans or a new pair of shoes than is underwear
11: because that's the last thing I guess
9: you can see. (laughs) Underwear alone in the US is a 15 billion plus market per year in terms of revenue. You see, the future of underwear is now. At no other point in the history of the universe have we had access to such a bountiful and diverse supply of the world's finest undergarments. New underwear startup companies like MeUndies, Tommy Johns, and Mark Weldon are booming. Joel Primus is the president and founder of Naked Brands Underwear.
12: Um, I was filming a documentary through so- Central and South America and I came across a pair of underwear in Peru and you know, the fabrics were incredible and it was something that I'd never experienced before. At, at that moment I didn't think I'm going to start an underwear company but for some reason and I call it a miracle or act I don't know but um, I put I bought five pairs of this underwear and I just put them in the bottom of my backpack and I carried them around for a couple months as I was traveling. And even when I got home, I didn't do anything with them. But I was so determined to create, to make something of my life that I had heard some success stories about some some fashion startups and and all of a sudden that thought of the underwear popped in my mind. I was like... That's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an underwear company.
9: Yes, underwear. Changing economies and changing lives. When we come back, the Great American Underwear Hour returns with the answer to the age-old question, boxers or briefs? Plus, more on the word panties and why so many people cringe when they hear it. Also, we'll hear from the founder of Spanx, who turned $5,000 into a billion-dollar underwear empire. All that and so much more coming up right here on Our American Underwear, uh, Our American Stories. Just you see what's going on here? No boxers, no jockeys. Oh.
3: The only thing between him and us is a thin layer of gabardine. Kramer, say it isn't so. Oh, it'd be so.
6: Oh. I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm on.
0: This is Our American Stories, and before we return to the Great American Underwear Hour with Jesse, we first wanted to vamp a little bit because in this segment, we have what we call a hard out. You see, the length of the segment you're listening to right now is 11 minutes in length, but our set piece that you're about to hear is only 10 minutes and 2 seconds long, which means I've got to fill 58 seconds so that the song that gets played at the end of the segment ends at exactly 11 minutes we're only about 30 seconds into this segment right now which means we have about 28 seconds more to fill this is great radio don't you think you're really going to enjoy the rest of this special on underwear the entire hour long underwear that's right is it time yet
11: and a lot of women ask well what do men want from their underwear, what is important to us. From, And I'll tell you what we want. We want the same thing from our underwear that we want from the women in our lives. We want a little bit of support and we want a little bit of freedom. Yeah. That makes sense. That's all of it is.
10: Makes sense. Yeah.
9: Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Did you know that by the year 2021 Amazon is projected to generate $62 billion in annual apparel sales? Of course you didn't. According to OneClickRetail.com, 2016 top performing apparel items on amazon.com were all in the underwear category here's the top five sellers Haynes men's 10 pack of crew socks at number five with 850k in sales Haynes men's top 10 pack of ankle socks at number four with nine hundred thousand dollars in sales Haynes five pack of boxer briefs at number three at 1.10 million Dicky's six pack of tri-tech crew socks at 1.15 million million. And in at number one at the top five Amazon.com 2016 top performing apparel items is. Ah! A drum roll, please. Uh, can I get a drum roll, please? And in number one on the top five of Amazon.com's 2016 top performing apparel items is Hanes Men's 10 pack Ultimate Cruise Socks with $1.25 million in sales. Men's underwear has been the biggest area of growth for the online retailer in recent years as Amazon is expected to surpass Macy's, becoming the biggest apparel seller in the United States in 2017. Spanks are another brand of underwear that have risen to monumental popularity in relatively recent underwear history. Founded in Atlanta, Georgia, Spanx specializes in underwear intended to make people look thinner.
2: I'm not fat.
9: Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx. She started this billion-dollar undergarment Goliath of a company with just $5,000 in savings. Sarah would find her inspiration in a place that she holds dear.
13: Actually, my own butt was the inspiration because as a woman I couldn't figure out what to wear under my white pants, so I I don't know if Warren's had the same problem, but um, a lot of women do, and I felt I was a frustrated consumer that had no business background and no retail experience, but I knew there was a void between the traditional underwear and the heavy duty girdle, and so that's sort of the moment that happened was so that I could wear these pants that hung in my closet.
9: So, Sarah did what anyone in a similar situation might. She took out the scissors and went to town.
13: I just cut the feet out of control top pantyhose one day and realized that that worked better than anything I could buy on the market as far as smoothing and getting rid of any blemishes or panty lines, but they rolled up my leg all night under my pants. So I went home that night and said, I've got to figure out a way to comfortably keep this just below the knee.
9: Necessity is the mother of invention, but Capital is the father of production. Sarah Blakely worked odd jobs to get the cash she needed to start the company.
13: I sold fax machines for seven years. It was basically uh, my only job pretty much out of college. And, you know, was cold calling for a living. I got kicked out of businesses all the time for years. And I, you know, did that until I cut the feet out of pantyhose. So I had $5,000 set aside in my savings. And when I came up with the idea, I just went on the Internet and started researching, hosiery or shapewear. Where does this stuff get made? How does it get made? And that started my journey of, you know, Spanx. I, I found out that most of it was made in North Carolina. So lucky for me, it was close enough to where I was living. I could drive there on weekends and take vacation days and go during the week.
9: After success, Sarah's attention turned to growth and teamwork.
13: The first two years, I was very involved in every aspect of selling it, marketing it, you know, trying to wear all the hats because I couldn't afford to, to hire anyone. And then I always say that when I could afford to hire my weaknesses or mm-hmm. the things I didn't enjoy as much, which are usually the same thing, I did. And I hired a fabulous CEO, and she's been with me for 11 years. And so that was a very critical moment for Spanx to recognize, okay, this is where I can, where's here, these are my gifts for the company, and here I need to, um find someone who can really manage the day-to-day and the operations. And we've been a good team.
9: So our friend Sarah here lived happily ever after with her billion-dollar underwear empire. Here's her advice on being successful.
13: What you don't know can become your greatest asset if you will let it, if you have the confidence to say, you know, I'm going to do it anyway, even though I haven't been taught or, you know, somebody hasn't shown me the way. And I I actually talk about that a lot now within Spanx. I always bring it up with the team and say, if nobody showed you how to do your job, how would you be doing it? Just take a minute, go to that mental space because nine times out of 10, you'll come up with a better way. But we're all on autopilot. A lot of times we're just doing something the way someone else showed us. So the fact that I'd never taken a business class, I had no training, I didn't know how retail worked. I think I was probably not as intimidated as I maybe should have been had I known all the research I mean I went into an industry that had been on a 15-year decline Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you know within um, a few weeks after I made my invention I called Neiman Marcus on the phone I didn't know any other way and then I ran into all of these people that have their own products and they would say how in the world did you get into Neiman Marcus Mm -hmm. And I would say, I called them. <laughs> and they would literally look at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, why? What do you do? And they go, well, we've been going to trade shows for six years, setting up a booth and hoping the Neiman's buyer comes by and that we get our shot. And I didn't even know there were trade shows. So that example throughout the whole process of Spanx just worked in favor in a lot of, in a lot of cases.
9: Now that is truly an inspiring story. So inspiring that I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, that's right. Underwear.
8: You know what makes me feel good? Curling up with a good book. Pumping iron. Maybe later. And these little numbers. Yeah, Fruit of the Loom panties. Sure, they're lacy and pretty. And show a lot of leg. But the way they feel. That smooth, soft Fruit of the Loom cotton moves with me. Hugging every little curve.
7: And the not-so-little curves. Now save up to $20 on select Fruit of the Loom products. Sweet Fruit of the Loom.
9: Buck Weimer is the CEO of Undertech Corporation.
14: My name and my title is uh, Buck Weimer, and I am the CEO of Undertech Corporation, and we manufacture Underease underwear for flatulence.
9: Yet again, necessity being the mother of invention, it's also the mother of fun little stories like this.
14: So I was a a psychotherapist at a hospital where I worked, and I was recently working with some coal miners who um, went through a disaster, but they were wearing gas masks. So I figured, well, if they could filter out the toxic gases, I must be able to get a filter that could filter out the bad smells of, of flatulence.
9: So Buck went to work on proof of concept with his odor proof underwear.
14: One night after some a very large Thanksgiving meal and all the gas was coming up and I was looking for a solution on how to solve this. So I noticed that all the gas was coming up towards the nostrils rather than out the side and the bottom, which is where the blankets hang over. So I thought, well, if I could direct the gas in a pair of underwear to go through maybe some sort of filtration process, that that would work.
9: Buck went on to obtain a patent on his odor-proof underwear and even appeared on the TV show Shark Tank, though none of the sharks actually invested in the product. I have absolutely no context for bringing you this story other than the fact that we're talking about underwear, and Buck makes underwear that masks the smell of your farts. When we come back, boxers are briefs, and why is the word panties so terrible? Plus, what does your underwear say about your health? We'll hear from top experts on what to look for. All that and so much more coming up on the Great American Underwear Hour. And here is the one and only singer-songwriter-comedian Rodney Carrington with the underwear song. This is Our American Stories.
6: I went to my neighbor's yard to to see what I could find. I found me an old pair of underwear hanging on a clothesline. Ask an old woman in a lawn chair how much you want for them drawers She said, if you're willing to touch them, them nasty things are yours They've been hanging out in the backyard since 1985 They were my husband's favorite pair when he was still alive They're stiff as a board in mildew if you wash them they'll be fine They got skid marks up to the waistband But they ain't no worse than mine I hope the boys at BVD can see me wearing these They just might find it in their heart To give me a pair for free Oh, they are my favorite underwear Wear them every day I use tape from Scotch to repair the crotch But I get blisters that way
0: This is our American stories, and we continue now with our special on the life of underwear. Here's Jesse.
6: A shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear, fighting on a bullet, and pulling out all of his hair.
11: A
10: shotgun
9: Willie's got all of his family there. Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Perhaps one of the most hated words in the English language is the word panties. I don't know why. In fact, I'm so uncomfortable saying the word, I'm just going to turn it over to YouTube blogger The Nerd Bird to explain it for
12: us. I hate panties. Not the garment. The word. And it's not just me. I've noticed that women the world over dislike this word. I think the main reason why people don't really like it is because it conjures up images of being a little girl because when I was a child my mom referred to my underwear as panties as in don't forget to change your panties and that's why when I see it or hear it it makes me go oh gross it's in TV shows and movies it's in songs it's in books oh it's in a lot of books the most frustrating part is that there are way better words out there to use instead of panties like underwear or undies which is my personal favorite knickers underoos I would like to propose that the word panties be taken out of the dictionary altogether. If we could just cease using it from here on forward, it would make me, and a lot of other women, pretty damn happy.
9: I think we can all agree to that. While we might not have the ability to strike the word panties from the American lexicon, at least we can strike the word from the rest of this show. The Great American Underwear Hour will henceforth abolish the term panties for the remainder of the broadcast. Starting now. Now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to answer that age-old question of boxers or briefs. Now, before we give you the answer, let's see what people on the street have to say about this debate when the guys at UnderwearExpert.com asked that very same question in the streets of Hollywood.
11: Hey, man, what's your name? Eli. Eli, how old are you? I'm 18. Al Underwood. Al Underwood. How old are you, Al? Uh, 52. 52? Chris. Chris, and how old are you, Chris? Uh, 28. John. John, all right, what do you do, John. Teacher. You're a teacher? What do you teach? Uh, I'm a uh, marketing consultant for the art of shaving. I work at Pizza Hut. What are you wearing today, boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxer briefs. Why? Uh, they, uh, they keep everything cool, separated, you know, snug. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs. Why? Because it's still kind of uh, long and it's not embarrassing like tidy whities but it keeps everything secure. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs? Yeah. Why is that? Because they're snug, they look
0: great when you take them off, then girls go,
3: oh. I got on some briefs. You got some briefs? Yeah, the boxers kind of let everything swing too
11: freely. Here it comes. <laughs> Boom, boxer nice. briefs. Yeah. Boxer briefs. Alright, what brand is that? Rocketwear? Uh, I think so. Is that your favorite brand? No, no, no. Favorite brand Calvin Klein. Haynes. Haynes? Yeah, yeah. Go-to. I like all my undergarments. I don't spend any money on. You got a favorite brand? Uh, Ralph Yeah. Ruffalo. You know, keep keep my guys cool. You know, and uh, just really freely flowing. They're uh, like, very comfortable. Some girls see a difference. I really don't care. Uh, Jungle green's my favorite. Yeah. Excellent. What does that say about you? I don't know. I'm a wild man. <laughs> I like it clean and neat. It's perfect.
9: So, what do men prefer in terms of sales? Boxers or briefs? Well, it turns out the answer is both. The boxer brief hybrid is the dominant form of men's underwear with a 40% market share. Jonathan Shokrian is founder of e commerce underwear company Me Undies, and he just might have one of the most interesting jobs on the planet. Designing and marketing underwear, he also takes pictures of women in their panties. Someone said panties. I know that I said we wouldn't use the word panties anymore in the broadcast, but I lied. Sorry. Someone said panties. In 2011, at the age of 25, with $400,000 of startup funds raised from friends, family, and angel investors... The Me Undies founder set out on a mission to disrupt the way underwear is manufactured and
11: purchased. I'm Jonathan Chokrian, and I'm the founder and CEO of MeUndies.com. When I was 18, I moved to Dallas for six years to go to school and work for my father's real estate company. First, I was just really doing management, and that literally had to do with anyone calling and complaining about a roof leak to, you know, a backed up sink or, you know, all the problems that you deal with in that regard. But then eventually I learned a great deal on how to manage people, how to like keep costs low and run a company. While I was in high school, I had a cousin who would sell electronics wholesale. I came up with the idea of taking his product and listing it on eBay. We were one of the top 200 sellers on eBay. Once he figured out kind of how to run it. He quickly kind of got rid of me, so it was a really early lesson on like how business works and the good and the bad that comes with it.
9: Jonathan Shokrian and his company Me Undies is currently selling around five million units per year. So far, we've heard from several successful underwear entrepreneurs in this hour-long celebration of undergarments known as the Great American Underwear Hour. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an American poet best known for *A Coney Island of the Mind* from 1958 a collection of poems that has been translated into nine languages with sales of more than one million copies. And when would be a better time than now than to hear his poem about underwear?
2: Underwear, yeah, underwear. That's a serious subject, underwear. I, haven't, I, I uh, didn't get much sleep last night thinking about underwear. Have you ever stopped to consider underwear in the abstract? When you really dig into it, Some shocking problems are raised. Underwear is something we all have to deal with. Everyone wears some kind of underwear. Even Indians wear underwear. Even Cubans wear underwear. The Pope wears underwear, I hope. The governor of Louisiana wears underwear. I saw him on TV. He must have had tight underwear. He squirmed a lot. Underwear can really get you in a bind. You've seen the underwear ads for men and women, so alike but so different. Women's underwear holds things up, men's underwear holds things down. (laughs) Or vice versa. Underwear is one thing men and women have in common. Underwear is all we have between us in the end. You've seen the three-color pictures with crotches and circles to show the areas of extra strength and three-way stretch promising full freedom of action? Don't be deceived. It's all based on a two-party system, which doesn't allow much freedom of choice the way things are set up. America in its underwear struggles through the night. Underwear controls everything in the end. Take foundation garments, for instance. They're really fascist forms of underground government, making people believe something but the truth. Telling you what you can or can't do, did you ever try to get around a girdle? Perhaps nonviolent action is the only answer. Did Gandhi wear a girdle? Did Lady Macbeth wear a girdle? Was that why Macbeth murdered sleep? And that spot she was always rubbing? Modern Anglo Saxon ladies must have huge gill complexes, always washing and washing and washing out damn spot. Underwear with spots, very suspicious. (laughs) Underwear with bulges, very shocking. Underwear on clothesline, a great flag of freedom. Someone has escaped his underwear, maybe naked somewhere. Help! (laughs) But don't worry. Everybody's still hung up in it. There won't be no real revolution. And poetry's still the underwear of the soul underwear still covering a multitude of faults in the geological sense, strange sedimentary stones, inscrutable cracks. If I were you, I'd keep aside an oversized pair of winter underwear. Do not go naked into that good night. And in the meantime, keep calm and warm and dry. No use stirring yourselves up prematurely over nothing. Move forward with dignity and invest. Don't get emotional, and death shall have no dominion. There's plenty of time, my darling. Are we not
9: still young and easy? Don't shout. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour on Our American Stories. When we come back, every year people in New York City strip down to their underwear to ride the subway... All that and so much more coming up as we conclude the Great American Underwear Hour. This is Our American Stories.
10: Market square she's standing in her underwear looking down from a hotel room the bar will be coming soon.
0: Oh this is our American stories and leave it to Jesse to find Tom Petty saying the word underwear. And now back to our executive underwear master Jesse Edwards.
9: If you're still listening to this broadcast, I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning expecting to know this much about underwear. And if you're just joining us, welcome to the Great American Underwear Hour, brought to you by Our American Stories. We've heard from one rich young American entrepreneur after another who went out and made millions by entering online subscription-based craft underwear sales. Hipster millennials sitting around air-conditioned offices from sea to shining sea cashing in and chopping away massive returns from big underwear like Victoria's Secret, Hanes and Fruit of the Loom. Out with the old and in with the new, right? Well, not quite. You see, the world's first recyclable underwear is a new startup called Reundies.
11: How it works is quite simple. Order a pair of the world's most comfortable underwear and they'll arrive faster than you can say sustainability. Wear them, live in them, be yourself in them. And then, when you're ready for a new pair, just stick them back in the package, slap that prepaid shipping label on it, and send them on back. You don't even have to wash them. That's right, Billy. And in fact, eater package is arriving right now.
9: I should probably point out that this underwear startup is completely fictitious. But that should tell you something. There are so many underwear startup companies in America right now that these people spend weeks of their time making this fake startup campaign ad. There are currently over 250 underwear startup company projects just on Kickstarter.com alone. Welcome to the golden age of underwear. But not all underwear is created equal. Not all underwear is fun and games. A lot of intriguing details you're about to hear that might have come out during a trial but didn't because the underwear bomber pleaded guilty. These agents say they don't often get a chance to interrogate a suicide bomber, especially one like this. Yes, we live in a day and age where underwear can take down an airplane, and they can even take down a congressman. Like former congressman from New York's 9th district, Anthony Weiner, when he was caught passing around pictures of himself in his underwear to various women online, he had this to say to Rachel Maddow.
11: Look, I, I, we don't know f- for sure. The f- photograph doesn't look f- familiar to me, but a lot of people who have been looking at this stuff on our behalf are cautioning me that, you know, stuff gets manipulated, stuff gets, you know, you can you can, you can can change a photograph, you can manipulate a photograph, you can doctor a photograph. And so I don't want to say with certitude it maybe didn't start out being a photograph of mine and now looks as something different or maybe it was something that was from another account. <laughs> that what we call a terrible lie.
9: You know, underwear is kind of a funny thing. Some of us would rather be caught dead than to have pictures of us in our underwear going viral like disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner here. And then there are these people.
13: Dozens stripped down to their underwear and it was all caught on camera. People gathered for the annual No Pants Subway Ride on the Hudson Yards 34th Street subway station. The movement started 16 years ago. It always brings tourists to the area with temps in the 20s. And this year was certainly one of the coldest, but hey, that didn't stop the no pants party. This is my first time. I don't know. My my friend my friend dragged me in this. She was like, you want to take pants
12: off in the train? I was like, why not?
13: Yeah, why not, right? Well, the event is also held in other major cities, including Boston, Sydney, Paris, and Shanghai. Now, one might think it would
9: be illegal to walk around town in your skimpies, but it turns out that there are no real laws to speak of, at least on a federal level. In Flint, Michigan, however, city law states that low-riding pants that expose underwear is a Class B offense. There are some more obscure and unenforceable laws on the books regarding underwear across the states. In San Francisco, it's illegal to wash your car with used underwear. Nothing about washing your car with new underwear, though. In Cleveland, women are forbidden from wearing shiny leather shoes just in case men see the reflections of their underwear. In Minnesota, it is technically against the law to hang male and female underwear together on the same clothesline. And that is just the United States... In Thailand, it's illegal to leave the house without any underwear on. Saudi Arabia's feared morality police won't punish men who walk around in their underwear. But women still face imprisonment if they violate strict laws on women's dress codes. But back here in the States, good luck going online or driving downtown without seeing an ad or a billboard with someone posing seductively in a pair of tight-fitting designer underwear. (laughs) One underwear company in particular has made people all hot and bothered on more than one occasion over the years. Calvin Klein. You know the ads, those black and white images, extremely attractive people posing with little to nothing at all.
4: I always think of our clothes as being sensual and modern, but when you start showing the body, well then you can have some fun.
9: And that's the man himself, Calvin Klein, an American fashion designer of Hungarian Jewish ancestry born in the Bronx, is currently worth about 720 million.
4: I've always known from the time I was, I mean honestly about five or six years old, exactly what I wanted to do. My mother loved clothes. And she dressed us really well. And my grandmother made clothes for people. By the time it was time for high school, I knew it was going to be fashion. And then I knew I'd go on to a college that specialized in fashion as well. And couldn't wait to get out into the industry.
9: Like so many other entrepreneurs we hear from on this show, young Calvin Klein didn't want anybody telling him what to do. We also get to hear about his very first job. My father was a businessman and my
4: parents discussed business all the time. I always had a sense that I would want to be the designer, but I'd want to be able to control what I was designing and not have the person who was manufacturing the product tell me what to do. my first job, the man who hired me, he said, you could have a nice two or three million dollar business. And I thought to myself, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, 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 I think I wanna do
9: something uh, bigger. Like any and every artist or musician, underwear designers like Calvin Klein must also find inspiration somewhere.
4: I was inspired by the
9: American woman who I thought was
4: modern, young, She wanted a career, she wanted a family, she had a family. She did all of these things and she needed clothes that fit that lifestyle. Well, as it turned out, there were women all over the world that were
9: doing the same thing. Back in the day, Calvin Klein found his inspiration with a young woman named Brooke Shields. One of the first commercials that we did, Brooke
4: Shields The camera moved very slowly across her body and then comes in on her face and she says, you know what comes between me and my Calvins.
7: You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Nothing.
4: Then it was shocking. We were thrown off the air on television overnight. And next thing, front page of newspapers,
9: full page of Brooke Shields, we got so much free publicity. And that was Calvin Klein, Underwear Royalty. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour. As promised, we're now going to hear from an actual underwear model. Now calm down, calm down. We all gotta be adults about this. Martha Hunt has been a Victoria's Secret angel since 2015.
8: I am in crunch time right now. I'm really amping up the workouts leading up to the show. I would say about three weeks leading up to the show, we really amp it up. And we'll plan like private sessions with one another, which is really cute. And I think it's just so empowering to be a part of a girl group that, you know, we need to work out for work, but we also can enjoy doing it together. It's always a lot of fun working out with the girls.
9: Oh, well, that was a bit underwhelming. Well, now we're gonna learn about how your underwear can save your life with Dr. Oz.
15: Do a lot of embarrassing things in the past But this might be my most mortifying request yet Today I have asked everyone in our audience To bring in a pair of their underwear
9: Now Dr. Oz will walk us through his underwear test Step by step
15: Let's begin So question number one is Does your underwear have less elasticity Than when you bought it? The answer everybody I want y'all doing it up there Should be no Because stretched out elastic Means your butt is getting bigger Next Question number two is the backside more than three inches wide? Come on, turn your underwear around, check in there. Backside three inches wide. Everyone look in there. Right. The answer, the guys don't have to check. This is more for the women. The answer should be yes. I'm not gonna touch that one. Next. Question number three, and we're gonna check this out now. I want you all checking on yourselves. Is your underwear too tight? And the answer to this also should be
9: no. All right, that one's easy. Nothing tight, got it. Next. This is the final question, and for many of you, it will be the most important question and
15: perhaps the most embarrassing one to look for. Does your underpants have any yellow stains? Oh,
9: all right, stop, stop. It's quite enough. Thank you, Dr. Oz. Oof. That escalated quickly. Well, I think that just about wraps up the Great American Underwear Hour. Boy, we've learned a lot about underwear today. From the humble beginnings as a loincloth in the Garden of Eden... To the Chicago World's Fair of 1935, where Jockey was born. From the top five underwear sellers on Amazon to the top of the underwear industry itself. With the story of Spanx founder Sarah Blakely, who started it all with a $5,000 investment. From the age-old question of boxers versus briefs. To underwear poetry. From bad to good. With the underwear bomber, to the priceless underwear health tips from Dr. Oz. Yellow stains. We even heard from a Victoria's Secret underwear model. Not bad. On behalf of all of us here at Our American Stories, thanks for coming along with us on this crazy and magical journey that we will forever know as the great American underwear Out.